family. While I'm getting set up here, I want to thank Pastor Vladimir for reading quite a bit of verses in English. You know, English is easy if you're born in America, but English is not easy if you're not born in America. And he's one of the pastors of this church, and so because he's one of the pastors of this church, he's not just a pastor over the Hispanic group, he's one of the pastors of this church as a whole body, as a whole group. And so we encourage, as a pastoral team, we encourage his dear brother to read, and he reads well. And so I'm encouraging you, brother. You're doing a wonderful job. Keep it up. Okay? Keep it up. Okay? So today is Covenant Renewal Service. You'll see that in your bulletin, in your bulletin notes. Covenant Renewal Service. And according to our church bylaws, we're supposed to, and we are, to have a Covenant Renewal Service every January. And what is a covenant renewal service? We've been doing this for many, many years. This shouldn't come to as a surprise to most of us, but maybe for some of us it's a, it's a little bit different, and today will be different. This is not the normal uh, sermon, so to speak. But a covenant renewal service is a solemn meeting, a solemn gathering of God's people for all who are active members of this church unless they're providentially hindered. Providentially hindered simply means that they're sick or out of town or have an emergency and as members they can't attend today and we understand those situations. And so this is for active members of this church who can attend physically today and if they're not able to do so then they should let their pastors know that they have an intention to still be part of this church. So what is membership? You know, when we think of the word membership, all sorts of ideas come to mind. We think of the Sam's Club membership, the Costco membership, the gym membership. Or we think of civic organizations like the Mooses and the Gooses and all sorts of situations like that. But what we're actually talking about when it comes to membership is an official commitment to serve God's people. And as we serve God's people, we're serving each other as well. So we are addressing meaningful membership. Meaningful membership or intentional membership. This is actively being involved in church life. Actively serving at some capacity at church life or in church life. This is also submission to pastors as long as they submit to God's word. I've preached several sermons here on how to fire Pastor Rolo. As a matter of fact, how to fire any pastor. Those are uncomfortable sermons. But the fact of the matter is, there may be a time in the future where you don't have a faithful pastor in the pulpit and they will open up the Bible and say whatever they want to say and the people will drink it down like Kool-Aid on a hot summer day. God's people need to be aware that they are to submit to pastors as long as pastors submit to God's word. 
You don't follow me blindly. Of course, I would love to have friends, but my first goal is that you would love Jesus more than anybody else in the world. Now, the thing that we are asking people to do today apply to Christians, biblical Christians, born-again Christians, Christians who've been changed in the heart. Now, I understand that in a gathering like this that not everybody in here is a Christian. So the things that we are talking about today, you can't do. You don't have the ability to do it, even though you may say, Pastor Rolo, that's a good idea. I think I should do X, and I, should, I think I should do Y. But down deep in your heart, you have no desire for Christ. And because your heart has never been changed by Christ, you can't do a lot of the things that I'm going to talk about this morning. So what's the call to you? The call to you is this, that you would plead with God to change your heart. That you would beg God for mercy. The God of the Bible is the God of the universe, and the God of the universe is the God of all grace. He's in the business of changing lives. And so if that's you, if you're not a Christian, then beg God to change your heart because that's what you need right here, right now. And when God changes your heart, then you will have a natural desire to obey God, obey His Word, and hate sin. You'll turn to Christ for salvation. Now, I understand there are another group of people in here that say, well, Pastor Rolo, I am a Christian. Then praise God for the salvation you have through Jesus Christ. Praise God for that, that you trusted in Jesus. Will you serve? That's the question for you. Will you become a member of this church? And I know there's all sorts of weird ideas about membership, but I want to talk to you from a biblical perspective today that you're called to serve. You're called to serve. So if you're a first-time guest as well, I want to encourage you, because there's another group of you, that if you're looking for a gospel-centered church, a Bible-based church, a Christ-honoring church that you visit, First Baptist Church of the Lakes, at least four times, because, because by the fourth time, you will know who we are and what we believe. We are Bible-believing Christians. So this sermon applies primarily to those who are born again, to those who are Christians. And at the end of our service today, those who are members will stand, and you will, and I will, we will, recite together our church covenant to the Lord and to each other. You'll see the main point in your bulletin, and the main point is this. God's people, who are born-again Christians, are to constantly commit themselves to God's Word, which is the Holy Bible, and His people, the gospel-centered church. Again, God's people are to constantly commit themselves to God's Word and His people. So I want to bring your attention to 2 Kings chapter 22, starting in verse 8, which Pastor Vladimir read. Starting in verse 8, 2 Kings 22, verse 8. This is page 307, I believe, in the Black Pew Bible. So read with me, just real quick. And this is talking about Hilkiah. This is not just any priest. This is Hilkiah, the high priest. 
and he finds a very important book. It's called the Book of the Law. And this is what it says in verse 8. And Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, Shaphan is the royal court secretary. And he says this, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he reads it. And he read it, I should say. And Shaphan, the secretary, came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Helkiah the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Helkiah the priest, and Ahikam the son of Shaphan, and Akbor the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the secretary, and Asiah the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me, and for the people, and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book, to do according to all that is written concerning us. If you've read the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, and you understand the history of the kings, the king represents the people to God. Many of the kings in the Old Testament were bad. In other words, they were evil and sinful. Why were they evil and sinful? Because they did not lead God's people to worship God alone, the God of Israel. They led the people to worship false gods, foreign deities, dead gods that have no power to save or redeem nor forgive God's people. So they were evil kings because why? They actually promoted idol worship into the land. The king is not leading as he ought to lead. He's not leading the people to worship God. However, on this occasion, the Lord establishes a very different king that is different from the normal history of the Old Testament. This king is a young king. He's actually King Josiah, who is eight years old at the time. The Lord establishes his throne at a very young age. This happens to be in the year of 640 B.C. 640 B.C. And he reigned for 31 years in Jerusalem. We see that in verse 1. But verse 2 is the key to what's happening to this text. Verse 2. And here it is. He, referring to Josiah, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And he walked in all the way of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. So what King Josiah did at a young age was much different than most of the history of the Old Testament kings. As a matter of fact, what King Josiah did was the exact opposite of Judges 17, verse 6. And it says this in Judges 17, verse 6, In those days there was no king in Israel. So it's bad enough to have an evil king. What's equally bad is having no king. And this is what happened. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right. It didn't say most people did what was right in his own eyes. It says all the people did what was right in their own eyes. 
In other words, there is no standard whatsoever. What you want to do, and what you want to do, and what you want to do is based in how you feel, based on how you think. The standard of truth is not even present. Everybody makes up their own truth. And so a bad king or a no king is not helpful to the culture, is not helpful to society. And I've said this once, I'll say it a thousand times. As the king goes, so does the nation. As the king goes, so does the nation. If you have an evil king, what happens to the people? They're influenced to do evil. But in Josiah's case, it's different. Josiah happens to be described and documented in the Bible, in the Word of God, for all of eternity, as a good, moral, upright person. He is straight before the Lord, and he leads the people to follow God. He's focused on what's called, as the Latin scholars would say, semper reformanda, always reforming. Reforming what? Reforming God's people, reforming the church, not from without, but from within. So they're continuously reforming God's people by way of God's word. That's how people change. If people are going to change and be pleasing and honoring to God, then you don't use the world's ways and methods and content to change the hearts of God's people. Let me say it like this. What do dead people, spiritually dead people, have to do with those who are spiritually alive? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And so the way you change God's people is by God's word. And so Josiah was known in the Bible to reform the nation And he reformed the culture and the society by burning down all the idols. He was burning down the idols of the Baals, the Asherahs, and other foreign deities. Anything that had a picture, anything that had a statue, anything that would be a totem pole, anything that would lead God's people away from God, he would destroy it by burning it. And he did the right thing. He destroyed any statue, any relic that took a person's heart away from God. You know, we can learn a lot from this text. We should be mindful as God's people of any shining light that's a lesser light, any shiny trinket that would take you away from Christ the King. So what would motivate this king to do any of this action what would motivate inside his heart to take serious reform in the culture it's our text for today second kings 22 verse 8 there was a book that was found and it wasn't just any book it was the book of the law whose law are we talking about We're talking about God's law. And so God's law was uncovered. It was rediscovered. Verse 3, King Josiah is not eight years old anymore. 
18 years has passed, if you read verse 3. He is now 26 years old. He's a young adult, not a young boy. And he commands Shaphan, the royal secretary, to go to the house of the Lord. The house of the Lord is language for the temple. Go to the temple and talk to the priest. And who was the priest? Not just any priest. He talked to the high priest, Hilkiah. And he says to Shaphan to tell Hilkiah, all the monies that have come into the temple, count it and figure out how much money is needed to repair this broken down temple, this temple that is in disrepair. That's what's going on here. King Josiah wants to know how much money is needed to fix this temple. Why? Because the temple has been neglected for many, many years. And once you figure out how much money is in the temple, then you don't give that money to me, the king, to spend it on myself. You give the money to the laborers, the actual workers, the builders, the masons, the carpenters. Give them the money. As a matter of fact, I trust all these workers, these laborers, and he says in the text, don't do any accounting. No financial audits, if I can use that language. That would never work in America. That would never work in America. When you give money, there's always an accounting for it. So they give the money. Then, when we get to verse 8, Hilkiah, the high priest, finds this book of the law in the temple. This book of the law is actually a scroll. Right? We think of books like this, a book. The Bible is a book. Back then, you would have long stretches of parchment, and you would roll it up as a scroll. And many scholars believe that this scroll was Deuteronomy. To be exact, Deuteronomy chapter 28, chapter 31, and chapter 26. Deuteronomy, most people don't realize what the word Deuteronomy means. Deutero means to repeat. Nomos, or in this case, nomi, is the law. So what we have is the repeating of God's law. That's what they uncovered in the temple. So as they were fixing the temple, cleaning the temple, getting the temple organized, they found this precious scroll of Deuteronomy. And so Hilkiah, the high priest, notifies Shaphan, the royal secretary, hey, we found a scroll. And when Shaphan read this Deuteronomic scroll, or the scroll of Deuteronomy, what happens to Shaphan? He doesn't stand there stoic, cold-faced, non-responsive, non-emotional. It actually, he read the word of God, and the word of God changed him. It compelled him and moved him to take this scroll and now go all the way back to the Jerusalem palace to King Josiah and deliver this scroll. And so Shaphan updates King Josiah. So we took an accounting of the money. We've given it to the people. But that's not the best news. The best news is this. We found this scroll. We found this scroll. I want you to read it, King Josiah. And so Hilkiah gives this scroll to Shaphan. 
and Shaphan brings it to King Josiah. And King Josiah reads the word, or he hears the word in this scroll, and in verse 11, here's the king's response. He tore his clothes. He tore his clothes. Why would a king tear his clothes? If you understand kings, they have royal garments, expensive cloth. But he hears the word of God, and it moves him and compels him to tear off his royal garb. Why? Not only is the temple in physical disrepair, but him and the entire nation are in spiritual disrepair. That's what's happening. He realizes, as I heard the word of God, judgment is coming upon me and upon God's people. What should that tell us? You could have a good king lead God's people, but if you don't have the word of God, then you don't know exactly how to lead God's people. So the temple is in physical disrepair. But the people as a nation are spiritually in disrepair. He understood, King Josiah understood that what I just heard was the very word of God. And I am deeply disturbed. I am broken. I am disheartened. I have disobeyed God's law. See, a lot of people don't come to church simply because they don't want to be told what to do. It's not a matter of Pastorolo telling people what to do. I could care less about telling you what to do, right? But the fact of the matter is most people don't come to churches because they don't want God to tell them what to do. They're very good at living their own comfortable, independent lifestyles. And so he understands that everybody faces judgment because they've disobeyed God. They've disobeyed God's word. Judgment is coming. And what does he do? He tears his clothes. He tears his clothes. This is somebody who's dejected. This is somebody who is broken. As a matter of fact, I would argue that King Josiah is now repentant because why? What he does next shows real repentance. Real repentance. And how do we know that? Verse 12 talks about King Josiah commanding a five-person delegation to go to a prophetess. This prophetess is Huldah. Huldah, the prophetess. And who is comprised of this five-person delegation? You got Hilkiah, the high priest. King Josiah commands him, you're to go. You're part of this group. Shaphan, son, Ahikam, a man that we barely know, Akbor. Number four, Shaphan, the secretary himself, and Asiah, the king's personal servant. These five people are to represent King Josiah to go to a prophetess and find out what is going to happen about this impending judgment. And so they meet Huldah, the prophetess, and Huldah doesn't have good news for them. Huldah says, what you read is going to happen exactly as you read it. Judgment is coming. No one is going to be spared. From the king all the way down to the servant, everybody is going to be judged. 
in this place, all the inhabitants, just as the word of God says. Why? Why is God's holy, merciful, merciless, I should say, holy, merciless judgment coming upon God's people? Because of verse 17. Verse 17 says, because they have forsaken me. They have forsaken God, their creator. They have forsaken the one who created them, saved them, redeemed them, sustained them, provided for them, and loved them. They have forsaken the Lord. How did they forsake the Lord? They offered strange incense or strange fire, strange sacrifice, not to God, their creator, but to false gods who have no power to save and no ability to forgive. They provoke God to anger. With all the work of their hands, as the text says, therefore my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. What is it saying? This is not talking to Gentiles, by the way. This is not talking to outsiders of the Christian faith, by the way. This judgment is coming upon God's people for forsaking God. They've disobeyed God's word. God judges his own people for their sins. So if you say, you know, I'm a Christian, therefore I can live any life I want to live. No, no, no. No, no, no. What did God's people actually do? They actually left God. They abandoned God. They rejected God. They forsaken God, the one who redeemed them, provided for them, loved them. Can you imagine going through the desert for 40 years and not have to worry about food, not have to worry about shelter, not have to worry about chinilas or chanclas or sandals, right? God provided everything they needed for 40 years in the desert, and they rejected God. And they showed it by offering strange sacrifice to false gods. Now God will consume them. If you think about what the people actually did, right? What the people actually did is they violated the first commandment. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. That's commandment number one. You shall have no other gods before me. And what did they do? They welcomed false gods. They offered strange fire to them. To have no other gods before me is to have no other gods before my face. In other words, I'm the true living God. Yahweh is saying, I'm the true living God. Every other God is false, dead, does not exist. And yet you offer sacrifices to them. God has a right to claim his people. God has the authority to claim his people. In general, when we think of the word jealousy like so-and-so, brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so is jealous. Every time we use the word jealous, normally that's in the negative connotation. Why? They want something that doesn't belong to them. 
Therefore, they're jealous. However, when we use the word jealous and apply it to God, it's in the positive sense. God is not sinful. God is not evil. God is holy and perfect. So when we take the word jealous and apply it to God, it has a positive connotation. In other words, God is jealous for his people because why he has the right and authority to claim his people. Why? Because he created his people and he saved his people and he redeemed his people and he loves his people. And yet his people turned their back on God. God has every right to claim Israel as his people and property. I want to read verse 18 to us. Verse 18. Because in verse 18 to 20, we see God's grace and mercy is given to King Josiah. We didn't read this, but it's important to read this. Verse 18. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him. So Huldah the prophetess, is talking to this delegation, this five-person delegation. And Huldah the prophetess says, you tell King Josiah what's going to happen. And here it is. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent, and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. And you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon them. And they brought back word to the king. So God's grace, God's mercy comes to King Josiah. Why? If we read verse 18 to 20 carefully, is because he heard the word of God, and the word of God caused his heart to be what? Tender, humble, tender-hearted, humble in spirit. See, that's the power of God's word when it's read rightly, explained rightly, applied faithfully. He heard the word of God, and it compelled him to do something. So for us, on Covenant Renewal Sunday, which we only do this once a year, to remind us of what we are called to do. Are you committed to the Word of God, O Christian man and Christian woman? Are you committed to the Word of God? It's easy to say verbally, yes, Pastor Ola, I'm committed to the Word of God. But what does that really mean, and what does that really look like from day to day? Are you tender-hearted to God's word, and does it humble you in spirit? Does it? That's the question you have to ask yourself. And be honest before God. And if you have sin in your heart, ask God to help you. Don't ask Pastor Ola, I'll pray for you, but I can't help you. I'm a beggar teaching other beggars where to get food. You go to the Lord himself. So what do we get from this text? I want to recommend five lessons that we get from this text. And I know this is not all exhaustive, but I believe this is helpful. Lesson number one, 
God the Lord demands fidelity from his people. God the Lord demands fidelity from his people. God has the right to call you to be faithful and committed to him. Why? Because he created you and he saved you. Amen? He has the right to do that. Lesson number two. The word of God cannot be neglected and buried away from the eyes and hearts of God's people. The word of God cannot be neglected and buried away from the eyes and hearts of God's people. The word of God must be front and center of any Bible-based, gospel-centered, God-glorified, Christ-centered church. You know, I had a conversation a week ago. I had a lunch with an old friend of mine. And he says, well, Rolo, I've been going to church lately. And I go, great, praise the Lord. What church do you go to? And he tells me about it. And I said, well, what are you getting out of the sermons? And he says, well, I'm not too sure. You know, that's a bad sign when somebody says, I'm not too sure. And I said, well, do they open up the Bible? And they said, no. Do they even bring the Bible into the pulpit like we do from Sunday to Sunday? They said, no. So you're telling me they don't bring a Bible into the pulpit. They don't open it. Do they read it before the people? No. So what do you have if you don't have a sermon? And he goes, well, we have a homily. A homily, okay. I just encourage them. This must be front and center. Because if you don't have this, then every person in here and in the nation will do what is right in their own eyes. You wonder why America is so messed up right now, morally, spiritually? Why we are spiritually broke and bankrupt? It's because this is no longer the center of the nation. You may disagree with me. Disagree with me with an open Bible. Don't tell me your feelings. Don't tell me your emotions. And please don't tell me your personal preferences. The Word of God cannot be neglected and buried away from the eyes and the hearts of God's people. It must be front and center. Next lesson. To honor God, God's people must know God's word and obey it. To honor God, God's people must know God's word and obey it. You cannot say, I love God and not know his word. You cannot say, I love God and don't read the word of God unless you are a CEO Christian, Christmas and Easter only. Right? That does not work in biblical Christianity. Try try this for a second. I want you to eat only two meals a year. I want you to eat two physical meals a year. And the other 363 days of the year, you don't get to eat. How are you going to look like at the end of the year? How are you going to feel like? What type of strength are you going to have? What type of goals are you going to accomplish for the Lord? Answer, you're going to be in bad shape. Really bad shape. 
So submission to God's word honors God. That's the point. Submission to God's word honors God. Next lesson. The word of God rightly understood causes God's people to reform from within. The word of God rightly understood causes God's people to reform from within. When God's word is presented clearly and it's applied to the heart, people are changed. People are changed by God's grace. Don't use secular methods. Don't listen to psychiatrists and psychologists. Don't listen to the news. Don't listen to any counselor or anyone who doesn't use the word of God if you want to be changed for God. That's how that works. God's word changes God's people. Last lesson. A good king is dependent upon God's word. A good king is dependent upon God's word. As the king goes, so does the nation. An evil king leads people to more sin. But a good king leads people in righteousness, hopefully taught in God's word. See, when we think of kings or those who are in leadership, those who run the nation, we think only in political power. We only think in authoritative power. But we hardly think in spiritual influence. As the king goes, so does the nation. Don't ever forget that, God's people. There's always a spiritual side to power. Which leads to now the second point. The second point of the main point, or the second part. Commit to God's people, the church. Commit to God's people, the church. In the New Testament, there are approximately 99 statements or commands in the New Testament that talks about one another's. One another. One another. Roughly 99. And so these one another statements are to be obeyed within the context of a Bible-based, Christ-honoring, gospel-centered church. So when you read in the Bible, love one another, that does not mean you can do that to its fullest all by yourself outside of a group of people called the church, called Christians. If God calls you to love one another and you decide in my flesh, I'm going to do my own thing, I'm just going to show up to church whenever I want to, you will never obey this command. You will never honor God in this command. Why? Because your flesh is stronger than your spirit, so to speak. But if you want to love one another as God has called us to love one another, you have to get in elbow distance. you got to get into the same room and let people love you, bless you, help you, minister to you, pray for you. And when they offend you with the wrong perfume and cologne, then what you do is you say, I love you anyway. Because we're going to follow this thing called the Bible. I've been offended a thousand times in this church. I just don't say anything. 
I'm probably over a thousand times. But the Word of God says, love one another. How do you love one another when you get to do whatever you want to do? Get in the same room. Let people serve you. You serve them. That's practical loving. And when they offend you because they dropped a little tiny word, you know what? As American Christians, we need to have thick skin. We need to quit being thin-skinned little pansies. I don't use that word lightly. We say one little word and somebody gets offended. I'm not coming back. Why? Because your team is not the Chicago Bears? What, what, what's the problem? What's the problem? We get offended for all the wrong reasons. So in the Bible, when we have one another commands and statements, you're to do that in a group called the church. So I want to mention three of them today real quick because I'm running out of time. John 13, 34, and 35. John 13, 34, and 35. This is one of those one another's. Love one another. Jesus says, a new command I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are whose disciples? My disciples, Jesus' disciples, if you have love for one another. This is known as the upper room discourse. This is now at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. He's about to be arrested and go through an illegal court proceeding, a kangaroo court that I would argue. He just finished teaching. He just finished washing the feet of his disciples. And he's about to be betrayed by Judas Iscariot. And in this context, Jesus issues an intense desire for God's people, and in this case, his disciples, to have a loving concern for one another to have affection for one another. That's what he is saying. You know, in the Old Testament, in Leviticus 18, 19, or I should say 19, 18, states this, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus nuances this Old Testament command. He says, not just simply love your neighbor, but now Jesus says, love one another. See, it's easy to love your neighbor when, you live, when your neighbor lives in another house in another zip code. What's hard to do is to love others who are in the same zip code or in the same building or the same workplace or in the same neighborhood or in the same shopping center because you're close to them. Jesus says to love one another. He's talking to Christians. And the standard for Jesus' love is a sacrificial standard. This is sacrificial love. This is the type of love that is not sexual in nature. This is not brotherly love, but this is sacrificial love. It's to love some other person when you don't have a reason to love another person, for their benefit at personal cost, at your own personal cost. And you say, Pastor Ola, I disagree with that type of definition of love. Well, look to the cross of Jesus. 
Because that's what he did exactly for us. What is there lovely about you and I in our sin, in our wickedness, in our addictions, in our sexual sin, in our problems? What is there so lovely about us? Nothing. And yet Jesus died for sinners. That's the sacrificial love that Jesus is talking about. Remember the cross of Christ. So our sacrificial love for one another, when we do that, we show the world that I'm a Christian and I'm a follower of Jesus and so are you. But when you leave and say, I'm taking my ball or my soccer ball and I'm going home because I don't like what you have said, you will never ever learn to love others as Christ has loved you. Because you want love on your own terms. But if you do this type of love, sacrificial love, the world will know that you are disciples of Christ Jesus. So the question, do we? Do we do that? Are we sacrificial in our love for one another? Or do you limit your sacrificial love on Sundays between roughly 9.45 and noon? Yes, Pastor Rolla, I'm going to love my brother and sister in Christ only between banker's hours. You're limiting sacrificial love, which is not a real sacrificial love to begin with. Because it's on your own terms. Another one another command, Ephesians 4.32. This is about kind and forgiving one another. Verse 32 says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. The Apostle Paul is reminding the Ephesian Christians about their new life in Jesus Christ. He tells them earlier on, he says, don't walk as the Gentiles do. Don't walk like those outsiders of the Jewish Christian faith. Don't walk like them. In other words, don't live like them. Don't have your lifestyle and behavior like them. These Gentiles are darkened in their understanding and alienated. They're apart from, separated from the life of God. And why? Because of the hardness of their heart. Their hearts have never been changed. The problem is always the heart. The heart of the matter is the heart. And that's why I said at the beginning of the sermon, when God changes the heart, you're changed forever. So the apostle Paul says, put on the new self because of Jesus. Put on the new self because of Jesus. Because there's a changed life. Because there is a radical life by God's grace in Jesus Christ. Christians are to stop their falsehoods and they're to speak the truth with his neighbor. If you're a Christian, you're to speak truth. There's a level of honesty and integrity that we must maintain as Christians. Speak the truth with your neighbor. As a matter of fact, it goes on and says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor. If you continue reading this, it's addressing all sorts of sins. Lying, theft. Oh, by the way, if you're stealing, it's not a matter of you just stop stealing and then you're A-OK. -okay. 
No, but biblical repentance is you stop stealing and you work for a living. You, do some, you stop the negative and you do something positive. You go work for a living. As a matter of fact, you provide for those who are in need. That's the context. And then we get to verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I think we all understand what being kind is, right? We are to act kindly, graciously with others. We're not to be harsh and severe day to day. I understand some of us have personalities that weren't naturally harsh, naturally firm. But if God has changed your heart, you will find yourself being more and more gracious, more and more kind. Tenderhearted is to be affectionate and compassionate. Forgiving is to, be, is to forgive based off of what? A gracious attitude. I'm being gracious to you. You offended me, but I'm forgiving you. Why? Because of a gracious disposition, a gracious attitude. It's goodwill towards another person. And why should we forgive others? The text says, because God in Christ has forgiven you. See, one of the reasons that is so hard for us as Christians many times to forgive other people is because we forget in those moments how much we have been forgiven by God's grace in Jesus Christ. And because we've forgiven what God has done for us in Jesus, that God has actually forgiven those who repent and trust in him, when we forget that truth, we cannot forgive other people. Because in that scenario, we have exalted ourselves in the place of God, and we say, I won't forgive you until you satisfy me. That's what's happening. But we forgive because God has forgiven us in Christ. Do you remember in Luke chapter 5 when, when um, Jesus, Jesus heals and forgives the paralytic? He says, man, your sins are forgiven. This paralytic man was not looking for Jesus. He was not looking for salvation. He was not looking for the love of God. And yet Jesus says, your sins, meaning all your sins, are forgiven. God forgives because of Christ. I hope we understand that. God forgives through the person and work of Jesus Christ. This paralytic had nothing to give, nothing to offer the holy and perfect God. Grace came to the sinner. So are we kind? Are we gracious towards one another? Are we affectionate? and compassionate towards one another. Let me ask a very hard question. Have you forgiven your brother and sister in Christ as God in Christ forgave you? You need to answer that question. And the last one another for this morning, Galatians 5.13. This is talking about serving one another. Galatians 5.13, 13 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, but through love, serve one another. Serve one another. The Apostle Paul reminds the Galatian Christians that God did a mighty work in your heart by his grace. 
through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so to be forgiven in the context of Galatians is to be justified, which is a legal term in legal courts, to be declared legally not guilty as a sinner condemned before God, to be declared not guilty is to have faith in Jesus Christ, justification by faith alone. I believe in the Savior that God has given to me. It's not faith plus my good works. If it's faith plus good works, what good works can you offer a holy, perfect God that God will actually accept on your behalf? What can you offer the holy, perfect God besides your sin and my sin? So the Apostle Paul warns these Christians in Galatia that if you accept circumcision because Judaizers came into the Galatian church, which is modern-day Turkey, by the way. They came into the church, and they said, that's good that you believe in this person, Jesus, and that's good that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and it's good that you believe that Jesus is the Savior, but you're not a full Christian until you take circumcision to your body. And when you take this circumcision, this work, and add it to faith in Jesus Christ, then you're a Christian. Apostle Paul fights vehemently against that. It's faith and faith alone in Christ alone. The Apostle Paul says if you keep this circumcision, this circumcision, then you're obligated to keep the whole law. You're obligated to keep the whole law. Most people don't realize that the Ten Commandments, which is God's moral law, if you read the first five books of the Old Testament, there are other, there's 800, I'm rounding up, there's 800 other moral commands beside the Ten Commandments. So what person in human history can satisfy, obey 810 moral commands or commandments from God perfectly? Can anybody do that? No. The answer is no. That's why we need Jesus. How many sins did Adam and Eve commit before they were vanquished and evicted from the Garden of Eden? One. How many have we committed? Thousands. We need Jesus. We need Jesus. So who can keep 100% of God's law? No one can except Jesus. So God's people are declared justified by faith alone in Christ alone. Not good works, not good deeds. If it is good works and good deeds, then it's only Jesus' good works and good deeds. Not ours. So Paul is reminding them, come back to the gospel. And when you come back to the gospel... Remember what the biblical gospel is, that you're to place your faith alone in Christ alone. And he reminds them that you are free to obey God. You are free to obey God. That is your calling. Christian freedom, let me say this, Christian freedom is freedom from sin. Not, not, not freedom to sin. Christian freedom is freedom from sin not to sin. So if you're free, John chapter 8, if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. You are free to obey God with a new heart, with new desires that pumps for God, that loves God. So Paul commands Christians to serve each other in humility as a servant without giving up their biblical convictions without giving up the biblical truth of God's word and his gospel. So let me ask you this. How are you serving 
this local body called First Baptist Church of the Lakes? How are you serving your brothers and sisters in Christ? How are you doing that? How are you physically finding creative ways to serve others instead of yourself? Facebook. I want to encourage you. You can use Facebook for the glory of God. Well, when you're posting pictures of your food that you ate for dinner, that you're in Mazatlan, hey, I'm not against good food and I'm not against traveling. And that's all that you talk about. That is not helpful to Christians. Talk about the word of God. Talk about how great Jesus is. Talk about the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Talk about that sinners are saved by God's grace through faith alone and Christ alone. You want to encourage Christians? That's what you do. Now, in the few moments that I've had or have left, I want you to grab this in the seat in front of you. It's called the pocket hymnal. Pocket hymnal. This is a free gift to all of you. Okay? Whether you're a member or not a member, this is a free gift. Okay? To you. And by way of mentioning this, I want to thank those who worked diligently, feverishly, worked hard to put this together. This pocket hymnal was put together, I believe, by Pastor Corey, Pastor Ed, Deacon Doug, and Grant in Oklahoma. And Brother Kalev. Did I, meet, did I miss anybody else? If I did, I'm sorry. But in this pocket hymnal are God-glorifying songs. You know, in the Red Book Baptist hymnal, there are 666 hymns. But in this pocket hymnal, there are the top 50 hymnals or songs that we sing that are God-glorifying, Christ-centered, theological, that lift our hearts to heaven where our king sits. Okay? Now, there's also five Christmas songs in here. The key word in this title is pocket. Okay? You don't have every song at your disposal. These are songs that we sing. Now, if you don't know how to sing these songs, if you get to one of the songs, you're going to see a QR code. Just put your little smartphone on it, click it, and then it'll take you to the church website. Click that link, and it'll take you to the YouTube page of this song. Okay? Then you will learn how to sing Christ-centered song. I'm not going to guarantee the arrangement. I'm not a musical guy. Okay? I'm just talking about the doctrine in the song. Okay? That's my job. All right? So, with that being said, click the link and learn how to sing these songs in here. But also, if you look at the table of contents, you're going to see catechisms. It's at the end of the book. Catechize yourself. Catechize your children. Catechize your grandchildren. Use this as a tool to help yourself and others. Also in here is the statement of faith. What do we believe about God? What do we believe about the Holy Scripture? What do we be believe about sin and election and salvation? That's in there. So for us, as we wrap up, and you have this book in your hands, please turn to page two. Page two. If you are a member, we will read page two and three together. Page two and three together 
And if you are an official member of First Baptist Church of Lakes, please stand. And if you're not a member, we want you to be a member. Please talk to one of the pastors. If you want to know what biblical Christianity is about, what the biblical gospel is about, then come talk to one of the pastors. We want you to be a part of us. I can't say that any clearer. We want you to be a part of us. Okay? But those who are members, we're going to renew our church covenant. So please read with me. Having been led, as we believe, by the Spirit of God, to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, and on the profession of our faith, having been baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we do now, in the presence of God, angels, and this assembly, most solemnly and joyfully enter into covenant with one another as one body in Christ. We engage, therefore, by the aid of the Holy Spirit to walk together in Christian love, to strive for the advancement of this church in knowledge, holiness, and comfort, to promote its prosperity and spiritually, to promote an environment of expectation for spiritual growth and maturity, to sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines, to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. Under the old covenant, it was required that God's people give one-tenth of their income. We believe that under the new covenant, we should do no less. We also engage to maintain family and secret devotions, to educate our children in the Christian faith, to seek the salvation of our kindred and acquaintances, to walk circumspectly in the world, to be just in our dealings, faithful in our engagement, and exemplary in our deportment, to avoid all gossip, backbiting, and excessive anger, to seek God's help in abstaining from all drugs, food, and drink that practices which bring unwarranted harm to the body or jeopardize our own or another's faith. We engage watch over one another in brotherly love, to remember one another in prayer, to aid one another in sickness and distress, to cultivate Christian sympathy in feeling and courtesy in speech, to avoid giving offense, to be slow to take offense, but always ready for reconciliation and mindful of the rules of our Savior to secure it without delay, to seek godly mediation in arbitration, when there are legal issues between church members, instead of going to secular law courts. We, for, moreover, engage that when we remove from this place, we will, possible, unite with the church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that we have heard your word. We pray that by the aid of the spirit, that your word would cause us and compel us to act that we would live our lives that, are, that would be holy and pleasing in your sight, O God. Help us to grow in grace and mature in the faith. Help us, O God, to recommit to your word and to honor your word by obeying your word. But also, Lord, help us as believers at this local assembly to be involved in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ, to bless them, to minister to them, to pray for them, to serve them, to love them, Help us, O oh God, in all of that. For apart from you, we can do none of this. We bless you and we love you simply because you have loved us first.
And we do so for the glory of your great name. And all of God's people said, Amen. You may be seated.